Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Dedham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. It's my pleasure to introduce Jennifer Dingman, who is going to be our voice of the patient today. She has been the voice of the patient for the entire series since the beginning of this Corona, Corona Care Community of Practice program. Uh, she is a uh, published author. She is part of our group that meets every other Saturday to focus on patient safety. She was part of a grassroots initiative that saved hundreds of thousands of lives and billions of dollars over the last decade in collaboration with and in support of the, the uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. And we initiate every one of our webinars. We now do two a month with the voice of the patient and, and reflect on the goal is to serve the patients and families in our community. Jennifer, would you like to open us? Thank you, Dr. Denham. And thank you everyone for being here today, our speakers and our attendees. Uh, this is a very, very, very important subject that we're going to be covering today with ICU care. And it's uh, this virus has just really taken its toll, hasn't it? But I really see uh, light at the end of the tunnel now with the vaccines and uh, the more people wearing masks and, and social distancing and people all being on the same page for the most part. And I'm really excited about the future. Um, so thank you all again for being here. I encourage you to share the recording with your colleagues, friends, and family. This is very important information and the whole series is recorded and it's very, very important. So again, thank you so much and I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for your steadfast support of patient safety over now more than a decade that we've been working together. So we really appreciate all that you uh, do and the people that you help serve. Um, so I'm Charles Denham, I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'm gonna cover some just preliminary information to give you a context. We started this program, uh, now it's a year uh, ago, in March of 2020 and are delivering, as you can see, the monthly webinars, first Thursday of the month. There are basic video modules at, at, on the website that are four to 10 minutes, some are longer, and then advanced modules that have our 90 minute programs, which I'll get into shortly. And there are also articles which we post uh, on the website as well. So feel free to go back. We're constantly curating the content and uh, many of our speakers today uh, have helped generate that content. All of it is for free. There's no financial uh, or commercial uh, uh, approach. If we get a chance at the end of this webinar, we'll play the video that we created on ICU care, res respirators and ECMO, how and what these devices in care is, are delivered. It's eight minutes in length, but I don't wanna take time away from our reactors and our speakers today. So if we do not have time to play it, we always wanna finish on time at 90 minutes. Please feel free to go and watch this video. And it explains how respirators actually work and how ECMO, uh, one of the devices that Dr. Boats will describe work. Uh, we have a wonderful set of speakers today, Dr. Gregory Boats. I'll introduce each one of them as they uh, speak. But Dr. Gre uh, Greg Boats is from MD Anderson and also on faculty at Stanford. Dr. Tim Jessick, who will cover uh, end of life issues, a fabulous speaker who we brought back because he covers such an important area. Heather Foster, who's an, who is an RN 
an infection preventionist, uh, has been an infection preventionist and advisor to us. Uh, Keith Flitner, who's in my, my book, one of the greatest uh, scout leaders that we could have in our community, an aerospace engineer. Charlie Denham, my son, who represents the, the, the youngest group of our high school, college, and young adults. Danny Policicio at NYU, who's uh, been with us and associate producer of a lot of our work. Jamie Iristorsa, who's writing articles with us and curating content and a, contribu a wonderful contributor and a pre-med pre student who's attending medical school uh, now in fall. Paul Bataya, who is an EMT, also a fabulous leader in our uh, colleges and college group uh, from the University of California, Irvine. Audrey Lamb, who is also an EMT from uh, USC, from the University of California, of Southern California. So uh, just to put things into context, we've been monitoring the IHME models that come out frequently that both administrations uh, since this virus struck have been following. And this is uh, a, a curve of uh, the daily deaths that were projected uh, in um, uh, earlier uh, in February. Now, the bad news is how far we the peaks were and the fact that we do see a second wave coming with the variants. And we were having two infections every second and two deaths every minute at our peak. And I know Paul Bataya, fabulous job, Paul, in helping build auxiliary hospital beds at UCI. And many of you have really uh, been able to uh, tackle a lot of these challenges. The good news is that we've had a dramatic drop in deaths and hospitalizations. However, if you look at that little uptick, uh, and this is from today's curve, um, you can see that uh, we're starting to see the impact of the variants. And you can see the orange curve uh, where I placed potential variant plateau. We're watching these curves every day and we, we're seeing premature opening up of many of our states in the face of the variants that are coming on strong and the doubling time of the new variants that may uh, escape the current vaccines, but may not, we're waiting to see, but are increasingly transmissible, much more transmissible than they have been. Uh, we're, we're, we've still got a way to go. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, it's not a train, but we've got, uh, uh, we've got some, a hard job ahead with many deaths and many infections that we could stop. So MedTech actually, and just to give you a context, MedTech was started five years ago with my son, Charlie Denham, doc, Dr. Boats, Chief Adcox from MD Anderson. And we've written a series of campus safety articles. We focused on the eight leading causes of de emergency deaths that you see on the left. We won't cover them, but we'll let you know that these articles are on our website. The family safety article, which you see in the upper right-hand uh, corner, uh, right now uh, is, uh, is, uh, addresses the family plans that we are covering. When you look at the Survive and Thrive Guide courses that we've created, we've now, uh, we've now completed nine or are completing nine. Today's is our, is our March webinar, what to do when they're in the ICU. But we draw your attention to go back and watch the others. They've all been converted into mini documentaries and we'll be updating the content as well. If you said, well, what's the full set? This is the full set ranging from uh, coming home safely and being able to protect yourself from the virus, keeping your kids safe, which is measuring vulnerabilities, creating a safety plan, templates for a plan. Heather Foster, one of our contributors today, uh, did a fabulous job of helping us with that. Uh, your 2021 safety plan. Last month was emergency rescue skills. This month is what to do there in the ICU. And then we'll be covering vaccines, variants, and victory because we really do see a light at the end of the tunnel, but a lot of work to do it safely. 
just so you know, if you're, you're a first timer with us, uh, we draw on a network that we've developed over many years of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities. We have more than 500 subject matter experts that contribute their time, their passion, their energy to help with this content that we generate. And we do this now twice a month, totally for free, nothing for sale. We wanna thank these wonderful contributors from leading hospitals all across the country and community leaders and of all ages, and also uh, contributors. And you see on this page, Sully Sullenberger and Jim Collins who wrote Good to Great and a number of officials in the prior administrations, uh, former astronauts uh, and leaders from hospitals that were in our prior Discovery Channel films. Lower right-hand corner, we're producing now three minutes and counting, focus on the emergency conditions that we can tackle. So when March hit last year, we decided that where we could add the most value was in the essential critical infrastructure workers, the people that were gonna have to work no matter what. We started our program when the surge hit Italy, we knew it was gonna hit the United States. And then in August, we know that, uh, um, that uh, educators, teachers, and the service providers to all of education, uh, K through 12, university, higher ed, and technical were added to the essential workforce. That became our target area, and we realized where we could add the most was uh, in family transmission chains. We took the bet that that's where we could add the most value, and we thought, well, that might be the Achilles heel. It turns out that if you save the families, you can save the worker, and that their risk of getting the infections from the community might even be greater than at work, and it turns out that the data supported that. We started this community of practice where we convene, connect, celebrate, create, and change the world. That's our focus. So that's what you've joined with us today. So uh, the content is on this website, as I described to you, uh, with a number of topics, and we're updating them constantly. So creating your family safety plan is focused on readiness, response, rescue, which we'll cover today, recovery we'll cover today, and resilience, which is target hardening for the next wave. We're very blessed to have all of these universities that you see before you collaborating with us and working with us. We have almost a thousand responses, uh, family responses. We'll be publishing the article, but we've been using the survey to drive the content. And we're gonna ask you to help us uh, with that today to just uh, undertake a survey with us and join us. We're, we wanna have a thousand responses. We'll ask you the question about readiness, response, rescue, recovery, resilience, uh, of your family. And so that's what uh, Kyle uh, is our, uh, Kyle Kemp is our chief of staff. If you've already responded to the survey, you can click yes. And you can see the survey has just popped up on my screen. I'm gonna move it over because I've already responded to it. But we would like you to respond to this survey. You will help us immeasurably if you contribute to it because we want to keep adding to the content. The first question is, my family's ready to take care of a loved one with coronavirus in our home. This is whether they're infected or exposed. Response is knowing what to do when they become infected. Rescue means, do you know what to do if someone develops the severe COVID-19 symptoms? And we won't go through that today, but these are topics that we cover. Recovery, do you have a plan to recover a family member if they were to get severe disease and the social restrictions are relaxed, which is happening now? And then resilience is, uh, is do you have an, an approach to be able to harden the target of your, your living unit? And we have many college students that are not living at home and we consider a family to be a living unit. And so our studies are being now uh, led by students at Harvard 
uh, alums uh, and students from uh, USC, from Stanford, from the University of Texas, and from a number of medical schools. So thank you very much. If you'd respond, it would be great. Now, what we have to do, and I'm all, uh, only in the next two minutes, I'm gonna cover this and then we'll move to Dr. Boats. We covered emergency rescue skills. What to do if somebody gets very serious, uh, uh, very serious uh, uh, signs and symptoms of this disease. And we covered uh, in our last webinar, we highly re recommend that you watch it in context with this one. We covered what to do and what to know about if you had to get your family member, your roommate, your friend to the hospital because of the, the triggers and knowing what the triggers would be of the troublesome signs. And we had uh, uh, wonderful emergency medicine doctors from Mayo Clinic that are leaders, the chairman of uh, UCI Emergency Medicine. We had Heather Foster all contributing wonderfully to this to decide what do we do uh, when we do that. And then we also talked about care at home after you get them home from the emergency department. This presumes that the emergency medicine doctors said, yes, you know, your, your, your family members got COVID, they're sick, here's how to take care of them at home. Now, what happens if they are admitted to hospital? That's one of the really key issues. So we talked about transport to the hospital, we talked about care at home, we talked about what happens in the emergency department. Again, this is a tease to get you to go and watch that. Uh, and we also have a videotape called The Five Rights of Emergency Care on our website with Dr. Christopher Peabody from UCSF, one of our other emergency medicine doctors, and then transportation uh, back home. So we covered those with these wonderful leaders, Heather's with us today, and uh, wonderful leaders in emergency medicine. Now, you need that context to know what these serious issues are. But today's focus is you got them to the emergency department or they somehow got to the hospital and now they've been admitted to the ICU. Now, what do you do? That's kind of the issue. Now, the article that I drew attention to has been published in Campus Safety Magazine and we addressed family impact scenarios. If you look in the lower hand, right hand corner of this slide, you see infected, severely symptomatic, need help. And you see the topic we're covering today is what happens uh, in the ICU. Uh, and it is my pleasure now to introduce Dr. Gregory Boats. We're right on time uh, now to have him speak. He's in the ICU taking care of patients. Dr. Greg Boats is a co-founder of the MedTAC Bystander Rescue Care Program. He is a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the University of uh, at Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, where I trained as a cancer doctor. I did my medical oncology there. I'm a radiation oncologist. He's also an adjunct full professor at Stanford University School of Medicine uh, and is also has a fellowship training. And those of you that don't know what a fellowship is, it's after you even get your specialty in simulation. And so he is a, a terrific educator, which you'll, uh, which you'll hear. We had to record him uh, yesterday because he is uh, he is taking care of patients. And so with that, what I'll do is I'll launch a video here uh, of Dr. Boats and play his presentation for you. Thank you, Dr. Boats, for recording this session for us. We know you're taking care of patients in the ICU and God bless you for all the work you do. Thank you for uh, giving this presentation. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today. Uh, to speak about this important topic, uh, what to do uh, there in the ICU. It's part of our Family Survive and Thrive Guide. 
Uh, over the last several months, as part of the coronavirus care community of practice, uh, you have seen a number of presentations uh, talking about the five R's. And uh, today we're going to expand into um, the topic from last month uh, when we discussed how to plan for a family member who needs to go to an emergency room or to a healthcare provider because of worsening symptoms. And we're gonna move beyond that to what do we do? How do we prepare? What to anticipate when our loved one needs to go from the emergency room or from a regular hospital bed to the ICU? And it's really important to sort of consider what is the ICU? Uh, as far as elements of how to prepare in our family plan, I think there are some key elements we need to consider first, uh, we should discuss with our healthcare providers uh, what the key findings would be that would signal the need to move to the ICU. Uh, what criteria will be used and where is your loved one uh, on the uh, spectrum of those uh, key findings uh, every day when they're in the hospital. Uh, it's also important ahead of time to discuss uh, any advanced directives. Uh, is there a medical power of attorney who can speak for the patient when they're not able to speak for themselves? Is there a living will or a do not resuscitate order that needs to be expressed to the care team if that's the patient's prior wishes? I know many people have stated to me when they come to the ICU that they don't wanna be on life support long-term. And having an advanced directive helps us in the conversation moving forward about what level of care to provide and for how long. Uh, it's important to identify a family contact. What person will be the primary contact for the healthcare team to speak with about issues that come up? Often we have a daily conversation about uh, your loved one and what their condition might be and what our plans are, but also having a family contact who we can call uh, if something changes, if something comes up and we need to have a discussion, who would be the first person to call? and have that person disseminate that, that information to the rest of the family. As you can imagine in a very busy ICU with many, many COVID patients, it's difficult to have a lot of conversations while still caring for, for your loved ones. And so having an arrangement where we can contact one person and they can talk to the rest of the family is very, very helpful. It's also important to think about how will you communicate with your loved one when they're in the hospital, when they're in the ICU. And depending on the technology that you have, you might be able to do things like FaceTime or WhatsApp or any other video conferencing technology that would allow you to talk to your loved one while they're in the ICU. Um, that is uh, a really important way to keep in touch, to get a, get a sense of how they're doing. Um, we have some iPads in my ICU that we use to contact family members so that they can have a daily or even more frequent conversation with their loved one while they're in the ICU. And then also important is to have a plan for the transition out of the ICU. Once they no longer need to be in the ICU, what sort of plans do we need to have in place for them to move back to the regular floor or even to home or a, perhaps a more long-term assisted facility where they can continue on with rehabilitation or, or continue on with their healthcare until they're able to go home? I think the first real question is, well, why do we go to the ICU in the first place? And in COVID-19 disease, the most common reason is because there's a problem with breathing. There's a problem with oxygenation, the body's ability to get oxygen into the bloodstream and out to the tissues. 
COVID-19 is a respiratory virus. It causes a respiratory illness predominantly, but there are other things that can happen as well. We sometimes see a worsening of the COVID infection that leads to a viral syndrome that can lead to other organ system dysfunction. One of the more important reasons to go to the ICU would be perhaps to initiate dialysis for an injured kidney. There can be some neurologic or brain symptoms that can be worrisome that we might move someone to the ICU to keep an eye on. And as well, people come to the hospital with various underlying medical conditions that can become worse, that can have a flare or an exacerbation when, when they're in the hospital that need uh, more intensive management. So what do you anticipate? What, what do you need to know about going to the ICU? And for those of you who aren't familiar with the intensive care unit, it is exactly that, it's intensive care. It's a place in the hospital where the sickest patients are cared for. The care is delivered 24 hours a day by a very um, uh, specialized team of providers, including physicians and uh, advanced practice providers, critical care nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, and other support personnel that work as a team to provide the best care possible to your family member. In the ICU, we often have a very much lower provider to patient ratio so that there are fewer patients for each nurse, each team to take care of so that we can provide more attention on a, an ongoing basis. And in the ICU, we use a variety of life support equipment to both monitor and to manage organ function while we're trying to cure or improve the underlying problem. That includes a variety of monitors that help us look at neurologic, uh, respiratory, cardiovascular function, et cetera and give us real-time information about how the body is performing. For respiratory failure, we often use a variety of mechanical ventilators to take over the work that the lungs can't do with the respiratory infection with COVID-19. We use a variety of infusions with medications that we help to, uh, to support uh, body functions with antibiotics, antivirals, pain medication, sedation, medications to support blood pressure, either up or down, to try to target the best physiology to maintain while we're trying to address the underlying problem. As I said before, with, with kidney failure, we can start hemodialysis, which is a machine that just replaces the function of the kidney in clearing fluid and, and the metabolic waste products from, from our metabolism. And a more extreme and perhaps newer technology that's being used in the ICU is something called ECMO. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, just as we learned last month that going to the emergency room is much different than it was before the COVID pandemic, the ICUs are much different as well. I think the most striking thing that we see is that we don't allow visitors in the ICU. We don't want to risk uh, both transmitting infection um, and we're trying to do things to pr protect our, our healthcare providers so that they can continue to care for our COVID patient population. Um, all of us in the ICU are wearing uh, various types of personal protective equipment, PPE, to try to keep ourselves safe so that we can continue caring for our patients without increasing our risk of becoming infected with COVID ourselves. Wearing that PPE can be very difficult in trying to do the things that we would normally do on a daily basis in the ICU. And so we are very deliberate and very careful about how we provide care. Uh, the ICU is, 
is a very busy place. It's daytime, 24 hours a day. And there's a team there paying attention to your loved one and doing things that are uh, important to try to prevent anything worse from, from occurring. And as I said, uh, COVID-19 disease is a respiratory disease. It affects the lungs predominantly. And so the most common reason that people come to the ICU is with something we call acute respiratory failure. The lungs are no longer able to do the work of getting oxygen into the bloodstream and out to the tissues. And these are two chest x-rays that help to describe what changes we see in COVID-19. On the left side is a regular chest film. Uh, it's a normal finding. We read chest films as if we're standing face to face with the patient and looking at their chest. On the right-hand side, you can see some haziness at the bottom of the lung fields, which we call ground glass opacities. That's the type of, of pneumonia that we see in people with COVID-19 viral illness. If we were to do a CT scan like here, uh, we would see the changes that are pretty common in COVID-19 disease as well. On the left side is a normal CT scan. You can see the heart in the middle. When we read CT scans, we, um, we read them as if we're standing at the patient's feet and they are lying on their back. So at the top is the patient's sternum. At the bottom is their spinal column. In the middle there, you can see the heart and the lungs are on either side. And on the left side, there's pretty crisp blood vessels and bronchioles that are going out to the lung tissue. But on the right side, you can see that haziness we described before, that ground glass opacification that is uh, really indicative of a, a viral infection, particularly the COVID-19 pneumonia. Um, the other feature in COVID-19 disease is that it can be rapidly progressive. People can go from being just short of breath and maybe needing a little supplemental oxygen to being in very much respiratory distress with very challenged lungs uh, very quickly. If we look at this CT scan, we can see that there is a significant amount of the lung that's involved with this viral infection and it's not participating in good gas exchange. The other thing that we're doing in the ICU is using a variety of medications to help support and perhaps suppress the virus to try to return your loved one to a more normal situation so they can get out of the ICU. Um, the key challenge for us has been what works. We haven't had a coronavirus that caused a pandemic in my lifetime, and we haven't had medications available to specifically treat it since we haven't seen it. But we use a variety of drugs that have been used for other medical conditions that may help a viral pneumonitis, a viral infection. Many of them are immune therapy drugs that are recently available. They're monoclonal antibodies or other types of medication that specifically target the inflammatory uh, products of an infection and try to dampen down the overwhelming response that we see. We use steroids like dexamethasone, which can suppress that inflammatory response as well. And there are a number of studies going on looking at a variety of different drugs like rheumatoid arthritis drugs or antiviral drugs that might be helpful in either reducing the length or the severity of the COVID-19 infection. There's also been a lot of work done on using convalescent plasma, that is taking plasma from people who have been infected with COVID-19 and recovered because they have made antibodies which may target the, the COVID-19 virus and giving that convalescent plasma to patients to try to use their antibodies to fight the infection has been something that we have been studying in an ongoing basis. 
Well, while we're trying to improve the infection, we have things that we can use to try to support the organ dysfunction, particularly the respiratory dysfunction that occurs with COVID-19 infection. The two most common that we use are high flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation. Sometimes non-invasive ventilation is called BiPAP or biphasic positive airway pressure. It's a lot like the CPAP or BiPAP machines that people with sleep apnea use at night at home. It provides a higher concentration of oxygen with a bit of pressure to try to keep the lung segments open so that they're participating in gas exchange. Now, if these intermediary modalities don't work, we often move towards more invasive mechanical ventilation where we put a breathing tube into the, the trachea or the windpipe and use a mechanical ventilator to take over the work of breathing that the patient can't do with such injured lungs. Another innovation that we've known about with, uh, with really bad lung infections that has been particularly helpful in the COVID-19 patient plans has been prone positioning. That is turning patients onto their stomachs for several hours at a time either by themselves, self-positioning, or with help if they're not able to do so. But by turning them onto their stomach, we change the relationship between how the air is being moved into the lungs and how the blood is being passed through the lungs for gas exchange so that you better match the ventilation with the, with the blood flow and improve oxygenation. Uh, this has been shown to uh, really improve oxygenation in people who have an acute lung injury associated with COVID-19 disease. And perhaps the most invasive or the, the most uh, significant form of support that we're using in the management of COVID-19 disease is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO. And ECMO has been around for a long time. We just have maybe haven't heard about it uh, in, in ICU care uh, in most hospitals. It's basically the same sort of machinery or equipment that we use in the operating room when someone has uh, heart surgery or cardiac bypass surgery. It's the heart-lung bypass machine that takes blood out of the body uh, through an oxygenator and then gives it back to the body and replaces the gas exchange function that's so impaired in people with the lung injury associated with COVID-19 disease. But I think the most important thing that we do in the ICU is just good critical care, good uh, management of the patient's needs over time while they're trying to overcome the lung injury or other organ system dysfunction that goes along with having COVID-19 disease. And we're seeing success in that. Um, so uh, what you need to know about the ICU is that it's an intensive location in the hospital where a, a team of people with special skills and special equipment are doing their best to care for your loved one, to give them the best shot of overcoming the COVID infection and the lung and other organ system dysfunction that goes along with it, and hopefully get them back on the right course so they can move out of the ICU back to the regular hospital floor and eventually home to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Boats. Uh, terrific presentation as always. Uh, very, very uh, spot on and, and very helpful. Uh, as our families think about the, 
the care of their family member or their roommate or their friend, and they want to interact with them, is there a, a, a good time of the day to do that with FaceTime or with, uh, with iPads or, or phones? Well, I think uh, as far as communicating with your family member, anytime is okay. Um, if you have uh, the ability to use one of those applications to communicate anytime, day or night is, is okay. Uh, I know that in, in our ICU, our nurses are, are very much uh, aware and, and really um, try to promote uh, communication between uh, their patients and their family because that's really important uh, for the well-being of our patients. And so if you have that capability, any time is okay. Fantastic. And as we've talked about the five R's and the R of rescue is the one that we focus on to get to the emergency department. And then if they have to go to, uh, to stay in the hospital, they might stay in the hospital, but not go to ICU, or they might go directly to ICU. Is that correct? That's right. It really depends on the severity of illness. It depends on how significant the viral infection is affecting your physiology. And if necessary, if you do need a high level of support right away, you'll go directly to the ICU. And then again, as we talk about recovery, as they recover in the ICU, they would typically go to a regular hospital bed for some period of time before they'd be discharged. Is that correct? Well, that's the usual plan. Um, sometimes we tailor the, the aftercare plan according to what the patient's needs are. Uh, having been in an ICU, not being mobile, having difficulty with breathing sometimes can lead to deconditioning. Your muscles aren't as strong as they were before. Your ability to you know, stand up and walk uh, well or keep your balance may be impaired. And so sometimes we want to um, provide some physical and occupational therapy as you transition out of the ICU to get you back on your feet, to get you uh, able to care for yourself. Uh, sometimes we call that street ready uh, so that you can transition back to your care environment, whether that's the regular hospital floor, uh, whether that's to a rehabilitation facility for more intensive rehabilitation, uh, muscle strengthening, balance work, uh, coordination of of your ability to walk and do your normal tasks, or whether that's directly to home where your family can carry on the care for you um, according to the family plan. Well, we've seen people in your occupation as a critical care doctor really learn a lot since the crisis in Italy and in the Northeast. Would you say that we've come a long way in terms of being able to save people's lives and also not have to progress to respirators and some of these more intensive uh, life support systems? Well, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I think what happened when the pandemic first started was uh, the healthcare system was overwhelmed and the critical care people were doing whatever they could to try to save lives and to support people with very significant illnesses. And we were doing things that were sort of outside of our comfort zone because we were somewhat overwhelmed with the number of people that needed that care. But as we have learned from those who have taken care of patients in COVID units over time, we have adjusted, we have um, calibrated the care that we provide uh, in the ICU such that we have uh, a much better idea of the natural history of this viral disease and how to best manage it. So 
Whereas early on in the pandemic, many patients were being intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation in an ICU very early because we were so concerned about their low oxygen levels. Now, not so much. Uh, very uh, often we are able to manage patients with that high flow nasal cannula or the non-invasive ventilation uh, just fine and not have to go to the invasive mechanical ventilation, which uh, certainly offers them a, a better chance at a good outcome. Fantastic. And, and now as we talk about the R recovery part of coming home and uh, after someone has had a pretty intensive reaction to the virus and the pneumonia and been in ICU, uh, there's a significant time of having to kind of get back to their, their new normal, isn't it? It's a, it will take some time and to anticipate care of your loved one or perhaps an elderly uh, family member, it may take a while for them get, to get back after they've had a pretty intensive bout with COVID. Is that is that a fair statement? That's that's very true. In fact, we describe something called the post-ICU syndrome in our COVID patients, as well as any of our other patients who are critically ill, requiring life support in the ICU from a variety of other medical problems. Um, it takes a while to get back on your feet. It takes some some rehabilitation, it takes some extra uh, tender loving care to, to ease someone back into their normal routine. Oftentimes, you know, they feel like they've run a marathon and they have a lot of fatigue and muscle deconditioning and maybe their other chronic medical problems have had a flare that need to get taken care of. And so it's not uh, easy to bounce back into your normal activity. Sometimes it can take uh, quite some time. In fact, there is a phenomenon of what we're calling the long hauler COVID patient who takes several weeks to months to really recover from the acute infection and get back to their normal function. Right. Fantastic. And then, and then uh, maybe one last question, and that is, uh, is regarding um, just some of the practical things. We hear a lot about when to get vaccinated and when to use masks and uh, the concern, and we're still learning quite a bit about whether people who have been infected, can they be, be reinfected? And if they are reinfected, can they be infectious? And I guess you would like to hear your pitch for maintaining the, the public health measures of masking and distance and all of those factors with your loved one as you bring them home. Um, you wouldn't be changing anything, would you? And you would still recommend at the proper time, depending on your caregiver, getting vaccinated? Or how would you like to describe that longer convalescence? Well, absolutely. I, I think that now that there are several vaccines available, it is really uh, giving us hope that we will get uh, some control on the spread of COVID-19 in our communities, but it does not in any way reduce the need for the public health strategies that we've had in place since this pandemic began. Wearing a mask is imperative to reduce the spread of the virus in our communities, to prevent others from becoming infected. Um, keeping social distance to try to reduce the spread as well is a very important consideration. Uh, cleaning contact surfaces that may be infected or contaminated with virus is still an important thing to do. And getting vaccinated when available is really an important strategy, not only for you and your loved one, but for the community in general. Um, it doesn't matter which of the vaccines is available. Take the first one you can get. Fantastic. Uh, 
try to uh, do what we can to increase the immunity in our population to reduce the number of places where the virus can attack and spread. Well, fantastic. Dr. Boats, on behalf of all of us, please uh, let your teams know how much we appreciate. You're the front line and you're saving lives every day and we're very grateful. Thank you very much. So we're very, very grateful to Dr. Boats and to so many contributors that helped us put together the typical family scenarios. And we put together a number of these scenarios that you'll see over the course of the uh, Survive and Thrive guides. And recovery after ICU care and severe disease is really an important issue, which we covered there at the end. It's now time for us to hear from this wonderful set of reactors and other speakers before we move to Dr. Tim Jessick's presentation. And first off, I just want to thank Heather Foster and Dr. Boats for their contributions at putting together the set of checklists for caring for someone at home. Heather had did a fabulous job as a, as a nurse infection preventionist and Dr. Boats to help us figure out how would we convert a room at home to care for someone. And someone may have been in ICU and the hospitals may be saturated and they may be releasing you, uh, your family member, your roommate, your friend uh, home. And we put together in another program how to do that, which we won't cover today, but it's really a great pleasure to have a frontline nurse who has also has had, has worked as an infection prevention advisor to us and a, an infection preventionist who is also a terrific patient safety advocate for nurses and for patients. Heather Foster has uh, done a terrific job collaborating with us over the last two to three years. Uh, Heather, what would you like to underscore or add to Dr. Boat's presentation? You have worked as an ICU nurse and, and you see it through the eyes of the frontline nurse caregiver. Um, well, I think um, what's important that Dr. Boats touched on was, at least in my experience, taking care of COVID patients is the family dynamic. Um, when we lift, well, when we implemented the visitor restriction, as you know, uh, that that was that was huge for patients. It was very emotional, and it took a toll on them, especially when you were seeing somebody in the hospital more than. Um, you know, five days, some, some there for weeks, um, and then in bigger hospitals, months. So um, having a means to communicate, um, I even suggested allowing one family member. I think that made a huge difference or could potentially have made a huge difference in some of our patients. Um, I think another thing is support, uh, strong managerial support is critical especially from a nursing side. Um, it was exhausting. Um, I couldn't imagine working in these bigger hospitals in the very beginning um, in New York City. Our hearts went out to those providers um, and having a support system there, even just to have an acknowledgement of what the staff was going through taking care of this, this patient population. And as you know, um, there's no real specific target treatment for COVID. So we know um, from experience, intubating these patients um, was found to be somewhat of a detriment. So providing the non-invasive ventilatory treatment as well as uh, 
um, high flow oxygen, especially in the mountain areas, we didn't, we kind of adjusted our parameters there. It kind of challenged the, the status quo, so to speak. And so we've learned a lot. We, every, every patient was different. That was really a, a learning curve. And um, I think that's what our, um, um, our current tide is taking us anyway with um, evidence-based practice is that every patient is different. So we learned a lot there. Um, I think Dr. Boats covered most of everything, uh, Chuck, but that's what I would uh, like to, to kind of push the, to the finish line. Thank you, Heather, and we'll come back to you after Dr. Jessick uh, makes his presentation on the end of life issues, which all of us want to avoid, but we really need to be prepared to kind of cover. Paul, thank you so much, Heather. Thank you for your, your steadfast support of patients and families. Um, it's, it's now a real pleasure to introduce Paul Bataya, who is the president of the Anteater Emergency Medical Services uh, Group at the University of California, Irvine. He's a pre-medical student, just an absolute uh, delight to work with, has worked with us on our med tech courses, and we've collaborated with him at, at UCI, and he is actually leading uh, the, the recruitment and organization of our college student-led programs uh, at uh, USC and collaborating with Harvard and Stanford student and alum, alumni and other organizations that are joining us as we kind of uh, follow this new bridge to recovery. Uh, Paul, are there things that, as an EMT that you'd like to underscore or perspective you'd like to offer uh, from your age group and your, your cohort? Yeah, Dr. Dennett, thank you again for this opportunity. Um, you know, it's it's important to know for, especially for people in my age group that um, that loss can in, in many ways be inevitable uh, and just to be prepared for that and to have discussions with your family ahead of time. So Dr. Boats mentioned uh, earlier in his presentation things about advanced directives. And this is challenging for people like us to digest because we're pretty young, we're pretty new at life. And it's hard to discuss life-altering events like that with your family members. Fantastic. Uh, no, absolutely. And it's something that we probably don't pay enough attention to. And we're so honored to have Dr. Jessick covering this for us. Um, uh, thank you, Paul. And we'll come back to you uh, with time at the end. Uh, Jamie Aristorsa is a, USC, uh, a UCSD graduate. He's uh, an incoming uh, freshman medical student who will be going to medical school this fall. We have a real the, the honor of working with him on multiple articles. He's co-producing continuing medical education programs for some of our best universities uh, and collaborating with us on the research that we're doing, as well as helping support the college. And now we're expanding into high school programs to actually help drive uh, vaccination and drive uh, family generated improvement so we can get on this road to recovery as soon as possible. Uh, Jamie, uh, would you like to underscore anything or things that you've learned in the work together with us as we're tackling this uh, and also representing the people in your age group? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I guess the first thing that I would underscore is um, kind of the obvious that uh, hopefully what we really want to do is we want to keep people out of the ICUs in the first place. And so one of the things that I've learned working with uh, MedTAC and writing articles and doing all of this stuff is that, you know, sometimes, as Paul said, loss is inevitable. And sometimes, despite your best efforts, um, you can't help end up 
being in the ICU. But um, I think if, if all of us, we wear masks, we social distance, if we wash our hands and do all of the common sense stuff that you've heard over and over and over again for months now, hopefully you can drastically reduce the numbers of people in the ICU and you don't even have to be, um, you know, coming face to face with all of the difficult questions um, like advanced directives and wondering how you're going to communicate with your loved one, how you're going to pick up your loved one in the ICU. And so like, I guess I'll, I'll just say the obvious that nobody wants to be in the ICU. And so I guess that's just, that might be an extra urge for us to try to do our best um, in just our general life while this pandemic continues to rage. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you for all the work you're doing with us. And uh, we'll, we have upcoming uh, FAQ article on masks an updated article on social distance, and we'll be addressing the vaccines uh, and actually this uh, uh, the issue of variants and the road to recovery. So thank you for your work there. Audrey Lamb will join us in our recorded uh, version. And just to let you know how uh, pertinent so many of these topics are, she just received the vaccine yesterday and it really uh, 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 got her sick. So she didn't feel she could uh, do justice to you as our audience today. So uh, for those of you today, come back and watch Audrey. She will be on uh, our recorded version. I'll record her next week, but she had one of the vaccines as a frontline caregiver and uh, is a little under the weather today. So we're, we're thankful that we'll have her uh, join us. Um, uh, Danny Policicchio is a longtime contributor to MedTech. He was an assistant producer on our MedTech films. Uh, he is an NYU film student uh, in, now in New York City and family uh, here in California, where I am. Wonderful contributor, uh, terrific, uh, terrific uh, uh, multimedia uh, specialist and working on developing messages for us and learning uh, the, the route to being able to uh, influence people uh, through film and through storytelling. Danny, what would you like to add to what you've heard? First off, thank you so much, Dr. Dan, for having me here today. And it's been great hearing everyone else's uh, takes on the topic. Uh, I have to, right off the bat, agree with Jamie. I mean, no one wants to be in the ICU. And I think the best way we can fully do that is, you know, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep social distancing. As at least I know in New York, the uh, guidelines are slowly being peeled back with the opening of indoor uh, dining and with the allocation of larger groups. You know, just keep up the six foot distance, keep wearing your mask, double mask if need be, and always wash your hands. And I think that's the best thing I could say. Thank you. Well, thank you, Danny. And thank you for leading the NYU team to help us with the research of the five R's uh, uh, and for helping us get that perspective from your age group and also from uh, the students there. You've been a wonderful contributor there. Um, we're, we'll now hear from uh, Charlie Denham, uh, my son. He is a high school student. He is one of our high school uh, leaders. He's a co-founder of MedTech now almost six years ago. Uh, he uh, has, uh, uh, is uh, uh, a, an aspiring uh, Eagle Scout candidate in uh, scouting and helping put rescue stations along with other scouts uh, with the advisory support of Keith Flitner uh, uh, here along the South, South uh, California or Southern California coastline. Uh, he was recently certified along with Keith Flitner as, uh, as a lifeguard. Uh, and he'll add the perspective uh, uh, regarding um, uh, his, uh, his cohort and his age group, and also kind of focusing on what we can do as we head towards spring break and these other uh, times when we are absolutely going to be gathering. 
People in my age group are unaware of how severe COVID is and what happens in the ICU. If we were, I'm sure we would be more careful. My message to families is to be very careful and consider using our holiday lifeguard checklist when you gather for spring break, ski week, Easter vacations, and other events. We can have fun and be safe at the same time. So this uh, program uh, we put together and deployed, and thank you, Keith Beth Flitner, for helping us with scouts. We deployed this when we had this enormous surge in the holidays, and you see a family, actually, those of you in healthcare, uh, the former CEO of Medtronic is there with us, and we have three family bubbles putting together a safe way to congregate outside and still maintain uh, the social measures. Uh, that said, uh, Keith Flitner is, um, is a aerospace engineer, is uh, an experienced uh, engineer in many sectors, uh, a wonderful contributor to scouts. He is uh, the advancement chair of um, uh, one of the major districts here in Orange County on the West Coast and a tireless contributor to helping our youth and young adults develop into great contributors in the country. Keith, would you like to add or underscore what you've heard? Well, it's been great, uh, Dr. Chuck, working with you closely, just not only with scouting, but in general, and uh, spot on, we noticed that the family unit was really the key to being safe and, and developing that checklist and other protocols that, that I think are going to become a, a permanent part of, of the way these organizations work. And, and I wanted to at least address today that the new information we just found out that in scouting, in Boy Scouting, our Scouts USA, because we now have girls in, in scouting, the number one merit badge during COVID in 2020 was family life um, as far as growth because of the, the family units being um, brought back together. So again, I get really it says starting in the home. And if you, you create those family plans, um, just like in Cub Scouts, when you go through, you develop a, a fire safety plan. Now you can expand that to all facets of safety, including COVID. Then you're prepared when a family member does become sick or um, God forbid, uh, goes into the ICU and then how to deal with it and the strength that that requires. I think um, th that type of preparation is, is essential for um, the, the mental health and strength of the family. So again, great program you put together here, Dr. Chuck, and it's been a pleasure uh, being with you almost since the beginning. Well, terrific. And hey, congratulations to become a certified lifeguard. Uh, you fought uh, three to four foot waves and we're saving practicing saving people on the surfboard while some of us were on the shore. You did a great job, Keith. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, I'd like to give uh, Jennifer Dingman is not only the voice of the patient, but we want to give Jennifer uh, uh, the opportunity to react now before we have our second speaker, uh, Dr. Tim Jessick. Jennifer, anything you'd like to add about the ICU uh, issue or anything you've heard? We'll come back to Jennifer. Uh, and uh, what, what I'd like to do now is set up the next section. Uh, the fellow you see on the, the slide there is, was one of my teammates. I chaired a, a group called uh, the, the National Quality Forum Safe Practices Group over multiple years. And he was the chief risk officer uh, of, the, of Kaiser um, Permanente out here in California, formerly in the Navy. And he, he developed something called SBAR, Situation, Background, Assessment, and Recommendation, which came from his time as a uh, submarine officer where structured language was so critically important to be able to share information. In fact, they had to be certified to use the, the telephone inside, just the intercom inside 
the uh, submarine, and this was his submarine. So I wrote an article applying this principle, but now on behalf of patients, where instead of having situation background assessment and recommendation, uh, we came up with uh, the idea of having uh, situation background assessment and request so that a family member could de describe the situation that their family member or their roommate or their friend was in, the background that they knew about what they assessed was going on and then making the request of the caregivers, be they emergency nurses, uh, be they emergency medicine doctors or their doctors at home. And so uh, Dr. Jessick will talk about communication being really critical as we work with families uh, who might have very se severe disease. We, they might be cancer patients like I had and might be um, uh, elderly patients with chronic illness closer to the end of life or even COVID patients. But this was a structure that we thought we would bring forth and we've covered it in more detail in prior webinars, but we wanted to introduce this idea of having a structured way of talking to the doctors and caregivers, especially if you're using telemedicine and, and FaceTime and not actually physically in the room together. So it's a, it's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Timothy Jessick. Uh, Dr. Jessick is uh, trained as a palliative care doctor, has recently taken the position at Theta Care uh, in, in a major role, uh, and has just done a terrific job at helping us understand a very difficult area that most of us don't want to really talk about or think about, and that is end of life. And so often we are, uh, my pastor Rick Warren out here in, uh, on the West Coast says, uh, you, uh, you may be surprised, but life is terminal, which is really true. And as a cancer doctor, I would go through uh, the experience of end of life with my patients. And Dr. Jessick offers, I think, some terrific insights. We worked together on a prior webinar for our doctors, nurses, and pharmacists addressing a framework called the five, the five rights of uh, end of life. Uh, it's a framework I've used with the emergency medicine doctors, with radiologists and, and others. And um, we thought that it really applied and we really, uh, our audience loved hearing from Dr. Jessick. And so we thought that we would include that in this, in this webinar since many ICU patients might be at risk. Uh, Tim, would you go ahead and take care and I will forward the slides. Thank you, Dr. Denham, and thank you all for, for being here. What, what an important, important topic. And what we've heard already is uh, from Dr. Boats is, uh, is a lot of great information, but what really struck home with me was developing that family plan. And we've heard that a couple times since. And I think the SBAR for patients is a great example of how you as patients and family members and friends can really empower yourself, can really empower your family members in anticipation, heaven forbid, something bad happens down the road. So I, as I talk for a couple of minutes about end-of-life care and planning for end-of-life care and having a family plan and a personal plan, I have a couple of critical questions I really want us all to think through. The first is why, why is an end-of-life program important? Why is this important in a hospital or in a clinic or within a system? Well, the big part of this is that communication is a skill. Um, this is something that needs to be taught, learned, and practiced. It's really no different than the skill of uh, performing surgery or procedures. It's something that needs to be taught. And unfortunately, a lot of medical students, a lot of doctors, a lot of clinicians out there haven't had that training in the past. Thank goodness this is changing, but this hasn't been practiced or taught in the past. So this is something that is really uh, needed. And this is where uh, health systems can really impress upon our clinicians that we need to learn this skill. It's really important for you all as patients and family members to, to have these conversations and 
to focus on the person, focus on the family. Being person focused is is, prim- is, is really a primary goal for us. So, so kind of ask a, a different question, you know, is, is an end of life program good business? And you all may not care about this, but from a health system perspective, it is important. You know, why would a hospital or system develop an end of life program? You'd hope they would do it because it's the right thing to do. It's a type of care that we would want for our own family members and our own friends. But there is evidence out there that actually providing patient-centered care and having good conversations really does improve the quality of care that is being provided. It improves quality uh, and ultimately it can actually improves cost. You all don't care about the cost part, but you know these facilities and, the, and these systems do. But guess what? If you provide patient-centered care, if you as a patient and family can be a part of the solutions and part of the suggestions of what your care should be, you're gonna be happier about it because you're getting care that you want. So all of a sudden your experience improves and believe it or not, the provider's experience improves. Doctors that have these conversations and can come to a, a common agreement um, makes our lives easier. So it's, it's just the right thing to do. So one other thought for, for all of you out there is, you know, think about a time when a family member or friend has been sick. Have they, did they have really good care or are there some opportunities for improvement? Was the care maybe not the very best? And I think about the couple in the corner. Uh, many years ago in North Central Wisconsin, I remember walking in this very big hospital and seeing this older couple sitting on, on chairs and the worried look on the man like we're seeing right now still haunts me. You know, why, why was he worried? Why did he have that look on his face? And, it, and it's, it's really stuck with me that healthcare is confusing. It is scary. You know, the system is big. There's a lot of noises. There's a lot of lingo and language going on. And if you're sick or worried about being sick or what kind of treatment you may have, it is really tough for folks. And it's part of our job as clinicians and healthcare providers to understand that and to, again, meet patients where they are. So how do we change this cold medicine? How can we become more family-centered? Again, this should be basic stuff, right? But it is really difficult. You know, the old Marcus Welby's way back when, you know, the doc's always right and I'll tell you what to do. Well, we know better now. We know really meeting patients and families where they are really trying to walk in your shoes, understanding who you are, what's important to you, that really should be the key. But that culture change is needed and, and is needed really soon. We're getting there, but we're not quite there. The other aspect is how can we be more proactive? How can we prepare? You know, Dr. Denham has done this quite well with these webinars. How can we prepare folks and be proactive versus reacting to be, get, be getting sick? But this has to be a priority and this has to be priorities for systems. But I know ultimately in order to do this well, we need docs and clinicians to have this type of training, but we really need hospitals and systems and clinics to buy into this as well. So that top-down top down support is imperative. So as you heard, we, we developed the five rights of end of life care and initially presented this to medical folks. But the more I reflected on all this, this is really, really important for you all. What are your rights as a patient or family member at the end of life? What, you should, what should you expect from us, the clinicians in the health system? Well, what we're gonna go over the, over the next couple of minutes are really those five rights. You should, you're ent entitled and should have the right conversation. 
the right goals, the right care plan, the right care and ultimately right documentation. And we'll go over those in a few right now. So the right conversation, you know, really what we're, we're hoping for is having the right conversation at the right time in the right place. Well, what does that mean? Well, the right conversation means you have a conversation with a clinician, could be a doc, could be a nurse, that has training on how to have these conversations, how to talk to you about what's important to you. The right time means more upstream, earlier, right? Good advanced care planning, good advanced directives should occur when you're not sick, um, should occur with your primary care clinician or your nurse or somebody like that. It shouldn't occur in the ICU for the very first time. It shouldn't occur at two in the morning when you're sick and tired and, and not feeling well. So really having the right conversation it needs to have all those different aspects. Once you have the, the provider that has had training to have the right conversation, then it's time to direct that to the right goals. Now, whose goals? Well, yours. These have to be patient and family goals, not clinician goals. We need to meet you where you are, not you meet us where we are. It's your goals that are important. So how can we make sure that we meet patients where they are, understand their goals, and then try to figure out which treatments make sense based on their, their goals? So a big part of the goals is that you need to understand what's going on. You need to, need to understand your prognosis. You need to understand what your lung cancer means in the short term and the long term. What it, you know, will you get sicker over time? Is this curable or not curable? How much time may you have with this? If you don't understand what your prognosis is and what your disease process is, there's no way you can establish your own goals or share that with us. Another big part of the, the right goals though, is really assessing you and where you are. You know, we wanna make sure you're not having a lot of symptoms, pain, nausea, constipation, things like that. We also wanna assess your mind. Boy, how, how, how are you dealing and coping with this new diagnosis of lung disease? You know, is this making you anxious? Is this making you depressed? All that is really important to really understand you better. The other aspect is really that spirit evaluation, mind, body, spirit, they're all important. What helps you cope when you've been through different difficult situations in the past? What has given you strength? Do you have a faith community? Do you have a pastor that helps you out? Does quiet music, music within, within a rainforest calm you down, right? But doing that type of assessment is really, really important to really establish those right goals. So once you've had the right conversation at the right time with the right provider, establishing those patient-centered goals, then we start developing the right care plan. And really that right care plan is linked to the goals. But this is when we start uh, planning ahead a little bit. This is where we start writing some, writing down some of your care plans on documents. We've already heard a couple times about a good advanced care planning, advanced directives. You must, must, must get your documents completed with a trained facilitator. It's so important to empower yourself to choose somebody else that can make decisions for you if you're so sick you can't make your own decisions. Get those documents done with a trained facilitator Express your wishes on this piece of paper about what you want and don't want. The right care plan would also involve 
really just a good discussion with your clinician about how aggressive care you aggressive a care you might get. You know, Dr. Boats explained this very, very well about what happens in the ICU. There's a lot of things we can do for people. We don't want to do things to you if you don't want them done. So really having that, that care plan and discussing this ahead of time is hugely, hugely important. But this is where you can empower yourself as well to ask your clinician, to ask your providers, to ask your nurses, what is my care plan? What do you expect is going to happen with me? You know, if, if I have more problems eating, what do I do next? You know, by all means, please ask those questions. And if the clinicians or the doctor hasn't discussed tube feeding or intubation or breathing machines and things like that, ask, boy, with my lung disease, if COVID gets worse, do you think it's possible I'd have to go on a breathing machine? Can we talk about that further? By all means, ask that because otherwise we cannot honor your wishes. So once you've had the right conversation, had patient-centered goals, started developing your right care plan, then it's really up to us to provide that right care. And we cannot provide that right care for you or for your loved one and if, unless we follow all those, those procedures that we just discussed. So really making sure that the care plan, plan provided is consistent with your goals and, and what has been discussed to this point. But this is where as a system, as a hospital, uh, as providers, we need to make sure we're measuring and have a process in place to make sure we're doing this in a really good, in a, in a consistent manner and in a way that really matches your goals. But this is also where you as patients, but also family members need to keep becoming informed. And then lastly, of course, is right documentation. We want to make sure that your care is, is the same across continuum. And what I mean by this is if you develop this great plan in the clinic with your primary care doc, we need to make sure that advanced directive document and the documentation of your discussion and your goals for the future are related to those folks in the hospital and to the specialists and to all other folks around you. Having those goals of care, uh, uh, goals of care discussions documented is hugely, hugely important. And just over the last couple of slides, I, I want to share share a case. I'm 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 going to call my patient John. Um, John John was a, a a pastor, and he was in the in in our ICU for weeks and weeks with COVID. And we were able to bring his family in for a goals of care discussion. We thought it was important enough to bring them into the hospital so we could really discuss what was important to John, what his wishes may be. And the experience was amazing. It was very humbling to have his wife and children in the room asking questions and to be able to have a family meeting where we discuss goals and John's goals and what was important to him for the future. The, the hospitalist I was with did a fantastic job of really meeting them where they are and figuring out what was important. But after our, 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 the end of our medical discussion, the daughter asked if, if they could pray for, for her dad. And of course, we were humbled to be a part of this, this ritual, and, and we stayed in the room with the family. And, and the prayer was just absolutely beautiful. They, they prayed, prayed for healing, but if that wasn't God's intent to, to make sure he, that their dad didn't suffer any further, they prayed for the docs, the nurses, all the caregivers. It was just a, it was an amazing experience. About an hour after that meeting, I went back to check on the patient, and I noticed the IV pole. And hanging from the IV pole, of course, were all these different bags and everything else. 
But then on the right side, I, I saw a scripture reading at the bottom. And it made me think, you know, here, here's all these different IVs and everything else that are probably saving his life, antibiotics for his infection, IV fluids to give him fluids and help his kidneys work, heart medication to keep his blood pressure up. And it made me pause to think, what, what is the most important treatment in that I, IV poll for this patient? And it very well might have been this scripture reading. It very, very well may have been the patient's very strong faith and the family's very strong faith. So without meeting patients where they are, understanding what's important to them, we might not know things like this. We may not know for them that his faith, his family's faith was imperative to them. So just, just in closing, you know, honestly, the dream scenario for all this is really developing that family plan. But the hope is, and my hope, and hopefully all of our, our desire is that patient-centered care is really the norm for all patients, no matter what, whether it be in COVID, whether it be in the ICU, but how can we meet patients and families where they are? And how can we make sure that these discussions happen on a regular basis and goals of care discussions are completed in all settings throughout whatever problem you're going through? And then lastly, is we wanna make sure as a system, as a healthcare delivery uh, provider, that we can provide care that's really consistent with your wishes. We wanna make sure we're doing all the right things for you that make sense for you. But we don't know what those wishes are unless we meet you where you are and make sure that those five rights of end of life care are honored. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, terrific job. And if we get a chance, we'll show the ICU video at the end, but if we don't, and I'd rather have uh, responses from our, uh, from our panel, just remember, there's an eight-minute video on ICU care there uh, on our website, and we invite you to watch it. But what I'd like to do is now come back to Heather Foster to start with and have Heather now the topic of end-of-life care is something you and I've talked about, and you've been very supportive of what Do Dr. Jessica has been saying. Would you like to re react to this part of the presentation? Uh, certainly. Thank you, Chuck. Um... You know, as I think, this is my opinion now, but I, I believe nurses have a better time talking about this aspect of patient care than um, some of our providers. Uh, we spend a lot of time at the bedside with our patients and their families. And I remember once uh, counseling a daughter who just didn't know if she had made the right decision um, for, her, for her parent and I just remember reaching down and she, she was crying at the time. And I said, you know, I, I believe everyone has the right to a dignified birth and everyone has the right to a dignified death. And when she heard that, I could just, it was sometimes what we say is, is just powerful. And, and um, also like what uh, Dr. Jessic said, uh, sometimes it's not what we what we do to the patient. It's what it's really what we should be doing for them. And I, I that just hit a chord with me. I think sometimes we tend to focus on what we can do to them. And so, um, with that being said, I believe this is an area that I hope our medical schools and our nursing schools can start really focusing on um, to better serve our patients and families. Thank you, Heather. Uh, terrific. And this is something where our nurses just are, are do such a terrific job. And 
there's a lot of burnout that has occurred over the last year, talking with Dr. Steven Swenson, who's written the kind of the leading book on this area of burnout. There's a lot we can do to help our nurses and our frontline caregivers, respiratory technologists and others who've been working in the ICU and in this end of life environment. Um, Paul Bataya, uh, what would you like to add? You did touch on advanced directives and now you've had a little bit of a deeper dive from Dr. Jessick. Right, so just uh, bouncing off what Heather Foster mentioned, you know, at, in EMS, primary goal is to figure out what we can do for the patient, um, which is a, what happens if we if we end up losing them. It's largely what we can do here. What uh, what what can we do now? Um, and you know, bouncing off of uh you know dr dr jessick communication is absolutely key having transparency between your family members and your healthcare providers and your healthcare team is absolutely important and that includes ems as well so ems paramedics emts in the field we can honor various requests that you may have various documents um including your advanced directives your you know, dnrs things like that and any any other requests that you might have regarding specific adjustments to your treatment uh, there, there are a lot of approaches and modifications that we could do. Um, but it's also important to drive home the message that, um, you know, all this is, in, you know, largely preventable. You can make a difference and you, you can impact future, you know, uh, events. Mask wearing, right? Double mask if you need to. Make the best decisions for you and your household, right? So physical distancing, any of that stuff. And now that we have vaccinations rolling out, get your hands on one of them. Get your hands on whatever you can. Uh, as Dr. Bose mentioned earlier, just try to get your hands on uh, any vaccine, regardless of what it is, uh, as soon as it becomes available to you and your family. Thank, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Uh, J.B. Erstorsa, would you like to comment on either one of the presentations? And I know you have an interest in cancer uh, care as a potential uh, area of specialization where we still have a pretty, pretty high fatality rate uh, much better than it was when I practiced, however, continues to be uh, a big challenge. And it's a big part of the daily practice of people in that field. Anything you'd like to add to the ICU discussion or the end of life discussion? Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of a weird emotion to describe because on one hand, I'm so grateful that, you know, these, you know, palliative medicine and all of these advances are being taught and they're taking place because they're such important conversations to have to ensure that your patients are getting the um, best care that you could possibly give. But at the same time, they're hard conversations to have. And, you know, sometimes the hard thing is the necessary thing. But I think that it's just so important that we keep reminding ourselves that in the end of the day, like what matters is the dignity of the patient and making sure that every single patient is being kept and cared for at like the highest moral standard and according to what they want and what their values are. I think that's just, a, you know, ideally, like it's, it's a thing that you would you would have in every single phase of your life, it's especially true, like Heather Foster said, um, you know, people ought to live a dignified death. And I just think that's a really, really, or uh, ought to have a dignified death, um, if, if it comes to that. So I think, you know, as somebody who's going into medicine, it's really fascinating and very important to be having these conversations. 
uh, great, great point. Uh, Jennifer Dingman, uh, it, we'd love to hear from you on your uh, uh, response to the ICU presentation or the end of life. You know, you've really uh, been right there to help so many people that have lost a loved one. And many of uh, our team in patient safety came to us because they lost a loved one. Would you like to uh, underscore or add to what uh, Dr. Jessic or Dr. Boats had said? Thanks, Dr. Denham. Both presentations were just excellent. I learned so much today. And, um, you know, with regard to the ICU, we've come such a long way, as Dr. Boat had discussed, the way that they're caring for the patients and things are much safer now for COVID patients because we've all learned as we've gone along. Um, so I just, I just think his presentation about ICU is really outstanding and really, really important. Um, the end of life issues are, that's just something that I have, you know, come up against. I, I started with my own mother many years ago, and I've worked with many, many people through the years. And, and unfortunately, our society, we're just not prepared. Dr. Jessick is doing such great work. Um, I'm so thankful for him and his wisdom and what he's, he's doing. And I'm hoping people when they're healthy and of sound mind, they can make good decisions about their end of life issues and, and matters. And I have to agree with Heather Foster with regard to nurses. When I went through losing my mother, she was in a coma for some time and the nurses actually got me through it. If it weren't, wasn't for the nurses, I would have lost my own sanity. Um, and you know, it was a really hard trying time and, and we weren't prepared for anything. My mother never talked about it. I never talked about it. I didn't know I had to make decisions for her. I wasn't sure I was making the right decision throughout her, her ordeal when she was in a coma. And it was, it was just really awful. And I would give anything to go back in time and have everything planned. Um, then I took care of my in-laws and similar issues had occurred with them. My husband's stepmother was the last one that we lost um, last year. Well, yeah. And um, she was the only one that was really prepared. She had advanced directives. My niece was her, uh, her advocate and made decisions for her. And um, things didn't go as smoothly um, as we had hoped through her hospice. Um, she, she did hospice at home and um, she, kind of her sanity went and and that was really really hard on all of us but she still had made the decisions before and we were very thankful that she made those decisions before so I think people in our country just need to talk about this more and and think about it more and I'm hoping COVID is a wake-up call with all of the horrific losses that we have had um, it could happen again, and I think it's a really great opportunity for the medical community to reach out to patients and families about these decisions th that need to be made uh, before anything happens. So I have to applaud you, and thank you so much for your presentations. Um, thanks, Dr. Denham. Terrific. And I want to give... Uh, 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 Keith Flitner, the opportunity also to re respond to the, the second uh, presentation here as well. Keith? You know, um, <clears throat> not really dealing with the end of life here, so it's, it's tough to judge uh, or comment on that. I, I do have a mother that's uh, going into a, a retirement community here, so I just uh, updated all of that paperwork. And uh, again, I think as it was said earlier, it's better to be 
prepared for this and it's not something you you think about every day and you want to do but again uh, we realized that we needed to have that um, update eight and ready to go and, and uh, again it's it's I think just in general Dr. Chuck and I have talked about this COVID has forced people to kind of put the topic of death on the table and make it more of a, a, a relevant conversation rather than uh, react to it after it's happened so again um, we were always talking about positives that, that have happened with COVID. It certainly um, has, has brought that forward into the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Danny, uh, we talk often about how the, the, the evolution of the folks in your age group have been initially, oh, well, that, that, that it's not going to affect me. I'm not going to get sick because I'm young. And, and now after a year, we've had many people that have lost loved ones or have friends who we've lost uh, and that kind of thing. It's brought a little bit more reality check. Anything you would like to add? Uh, yes, sir. I mean, all I can really say is if it's not affecting you, it's still affecting someone. And if you don't have symptoms, you can still transmit COVID. It just, like I said before, just be as safe as possible, wear your mask, wash your hands, and make sure to social distance. Fantastic. So we just have a couple of minutes. And so what I thought I'd do is come back to Dr. Jessic to see what he would like to add. But we have a couple of minutes just to show uh, the group. Uh, this is the website where the content that you have seen uh, is available. And when we look at our recorded broadcasts, and we look at where we are, today's is they are in the ICU. I just wanna draw your attention back to keeping our kids safe, which we're going to be updating in synchrony with the CDC guidelines regarding um, assessment of risk and making decisions. And you can see that you see a number of our speakers that were on that, uh, on that group. And we basically provided some tools for you as, an you as individuals and for organizations to be able to kind of look at the challenges that you might face. And as we uh, do that, and we, we look at that, I, I'll show in the summary section of the slides, uh, it'll be on uh, the slide 107. So I'm just gonna go to what slide 107 that's in the back of the slide deck we provided to you. We basically took the strategy of not recommending where what you would do to keep your kids safe, but actually how to assess the threats that are likely to cause harm to you and your family based on the community threats and your inside threats of your vulnerabilities. So in my family, we have certain healthcare conditions that increase our vulnerability so that we would behave a little bit differently than a family that didn't. And the outside threats are the infection rate in the community. So when you look at those two together, then you can assess what the risk is and make the decision. So there's a certain threat internally within your family or within your living unit, if you've got, got roommates, maybe somebody that is at risk for something. Vulnerability are the weaknesses that could be exploited by those threats, both the virus in the community and your internal condition. I may have a certain disease where I'm more likely to get uh, to get COVID or some other pandemic that might hit. And that allows us to calculate the probability of harm. What is the probability? So we just wanna draw your attention to go back if you get a chance to watch uh, the program that we developed, we're synchronizing it with the CDC guidelines for opening schools and we were not very far off. These are, these are in the supplemental deck that you have of the steps that one would take as we reopen as we reopen the community, as we reduce the, the, the guidelines from public health, 
you really need to assess your own risk, your roommate's risk, your own family risk, your living unit risk, and then make the decision, not just based on whether a governor decides to remove something or add something or uh, a, a local county does. It really is all about you and those that you love and those that you're together with. And as Charlie, my son, uh, uh, said, his pitch was, as we head towards spring break and as we head towards uh, uh, vacations, Easter vacation, spring break, ski week, uh, and summer vacations, uh, be, being the, the lifeguard, being able to kind of watch for helping people, it's really being a lifeguard is 90% pre pre uh, prevention and only 10% rescue. So as we go back to uh, uh, our, our group, Tim, I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to sum up anything you'd like to, and we'll go back to Jenny to be our voice of the patient. I'll just close very quickly by just saying this this topic can be very scary. It doesn't have to be. Um, empower yourself. This is your chance to have your own voice. Uh, the, the, the hope is to we hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. But So please have these conversations with your family members, with your clinicians. Um, that can be the best gift you can give to your family is, is, is planning for the future and documenting some of these discussions and some of your plans. Great. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for being such a great contributor. You're in a new great job. And we know doing three webinars over a couple of months is, a, is taxing your time, but you've made a great contribution. We're all very grateful. Uh, we're all very grateful for all of you that participated as panelists and for Dr. Boats, who's now sticking it out in the ICU. So God bless all of you. Thank you very much. Uh, and I will follow up with each one of you to see what we can do better next time. Uh, however, we always go back to the voice of the patient and family, and there isn't any better voice than Jennifer Dingman. Jennifer, would you close us and we'll end the webinar for today. Thank you, Dr. Denham. Um, again, thank you to all of our speakers and participants for being here. This is so important. Uh, again, share the video the videos and go to the website and invite your colleagues, friends, families to come to future webinars and um, be safe, of course, and encourage others to follow the protocols, wearing a mask, social distancing, getting those shots. And most of all, um, those of us who have faith keep praying because I light is as I said in the beginning at the end of the tunnel and I I really see positive really wonderful things happening in the future for our country um, and again thank you all for being here and we'll see you next month God bless you thank you Jennifer and our next webinar will be on the vaccines the variants and the road to victory so thank you again this closes our webinar <laughs>